Peter. How do you feel about the royal family? I can spot at least four or five Americans I've counted this morning who maybe think it's a kind of cute British thing. It's, it's pretty good for, for tourism. Um, you might admire them. You might look to them for wedding inspiration. Maybe you tune into the Queen's speech every Christmas. But it is a little bit odd, isn't it? They don't quite fit with how we actually do things now. We're kind of done with monarchies these days. Kingdoms aren't a popular idea. A functional king we've left back in the past, fighting their medieval gory wars. Maybe the modern-day equivalent is a dictator. A few of them exist around the world. Kingdoms aren't actually a popular idea. Except I wonder if they actually are. If you walked into a bookshop... Would it be hard to find a fantasy book with a king or a queen or a kingdom as a main theme? Would it be hard? I think I could find it really quickly. I wonder if that's because somewhere deep down inside, we actually like the idea that we actually want a king. I think of Lord of the Rings, and I I would quite like a king like Aragorn. He's not greedy, he's not bloodthirsty, he's not a tyrant. He is brave, he is honourable. He would fight to the end for his kingdom, for his people. A king who cares enough, who loves enough, even to risk his own life. A king who stands up to the evil and darkness of the world. Wouldn't you like someone like that as your king? Or is that just too good to be true? It seems to me that monarchy working or not isn't actually about the system. It's about the person at the centre of it. It's about the character of the king. We've not moved on from monarchies because the system is broken. We've moved on because there's never been anyone good enough to be king. The king, I think, we all really want. For the last few weeks, we've been looking at some chapters from the start of Matthew's Gospel. I wonder if you've been wondering what all these signs mean. The first one, I'm just going to solve the puzzle for you now. Um, the first one is repent. The second one is look. Um, the third one, Toby, what was the third one? Love. And this last one is follow. Matthew's Gospel is one of Jesus' closest friends telling the story of his life and ministry. Today we're looking at what Jesus does first. As he begins to speak of his kingdom, Matthew is presenting Jesus as a man who I think can fill this role of being king. But he doesn't start in the great city of Jerusalem, the city of King David. His kingdom is a bit different from any kingdom we've ever seen before. It's not a historical nation or an empire. It's people from any time or any place who call Jesus their king. And now when Jesus begins his ministry, we hear the kingdom of heaven has come near. But what is this kingdom of heaven like? Is it real? Is it true? Can we be part of it? And what difference does it actually make? We're now getting to our Bible reading. You might want to keep your finger in Isaiah 8, which we read earlier on, if you still have it open. Um, But turn with me now to Matthew chapter 4. It's on page 968. 
I'm going to uh, divide our, our reading up into three bite-sized chunks today. Part one starts at verse 12 from Matthew 4. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the valley of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What did you notice in that passage? Was there anywhere unfamiliar? Did you notice all the place names? Galilee, Nazareth, Capernaum, Zebulun, Naphtali. I've not heard of all of them. When I'm reading quickly, I would just skip over them. I think I can get the gist of what's going on. But this is a human story. We are humans. We know that places are more important to us than that. Think of all the places you have special memories of, the places you lived and grew up, where you proposed, where you went on holiday. Or think about that football stadium in Belo Horizonte. Ronaldo scored 144 goals there, a nice square number for you mathematicians. It's where Brazil beats Chile 3-2 in penalties to get another step in a World Cup. A place with good memories, but then there was that match last week. You know what happened. The place means something different now. There's lots more emotions attached to it. So we know places are really important to us. Why are Zebulun and Naphtali important to Matthew's story? Why is he drawing our attention to them? As Peter told us a bit earlier on, there are, they are two of the smaller tribes of Israel who are given land in the very north of the country. 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah warned the people that an invasion was coming. They didn't like the sound of it. So the people turned away from the warnings of the prophets to consult mediums and spiritists. The voices that they wanted to hear, the voices that were saying nice things to them. But it was the words of the prophet that came true. The Assyrians invaded, and when they came, they came from the north. So it was Zebulun and Naphtali who were the first to be conquered. They were the weakest link. They were held in contempt disgraced. By the time of Jesus, the place is looked down upon and marginalised. No one thinks anything good can come from there. I'll read again the warning in Isaiah chapter 8. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instructions and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. 
Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upwards, they will curse their king and their god. They will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Isaiah gives us this picture. They have no light of dawn. Obviously, the sun kept coming up each day for all those years. But spiritually, I think we're meant to picture a place where the sun doesn't come up anymore. That's what it feels like. They were living in spiritual darkness. I wonder what they hoped in. You might have noticed I cut Isaiah's words short just then. They were not without hope. When the Bible gets very dark... There are some beautiful buts or neverthelesses that kick in when God steps in and changes things. I like to think if they had a fridge, that somewhere amongst the clutter on their fridge door, there might be a fridge magnet. Maybe it would have a sunrise behind it. Words that get passed on through the generations. Words about a king coming to restore his kingdom. Words full of promise. Words that Matthew uses in our passage to talk of Jesus' arrival. This is what Isaiah said. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The kingdom of heaven has now come near to these people. What is the kingdom of heaven like? The kingdom of heaven is the true hope for those living in darkness. And its king starts in a forgotten, ashamed land that has rebelled against God and not listened to his words. But the sun is now coming up. Light is dawning in the darkness. The kingdom of heaven has come near. This is good news for us too. Nothing you can do can take you so far away from God's kingdom that Jesus can't bring you back. His grace is big enough for you. Those who are far away and disgraced and are not Jesus' last thought It's not just that it's nice to include everyone. These people who live by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan are Jesus' first thought. This is where he chooses to begin his ministry. This is where he starts to show people what the kingdom is like. The kingdom of heaven is the true hope for those living in darkness. And we're coming now to the second part of today's passage. This is where the rubber starts to hit the road. If this kingdom of heaven is the true hope, how will people respond to it? How will people respond to this king? I'm going to read now from verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, 
James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. What most astonished you? What is not normal in that story? Peter and Andrew seem to leave their net in the lake, having just thrown it in. James and John were helping their father mend some other nets. But the next moment, Zebedee is on his own in the boat, and his two sons are following Jesus. The first thing I think we're meant to notice is these men leave everything to follow Jesus. I don't think it's normal to give up that much. They leave their jobs, their families, their security. These fishermen leave everything to follow Jesus. Can you imagine that? How does it look? Reckless, crazy, extreme, irresponsible? I'm speaking well outside my experience here, but the closest picture I can think of to describe it is marriage. Because it's about committing to a person. And a marriage promise is made without fully knowing what is coming up. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And it's really costly as well. In marriage, we promise to stick with our spouse no matter what. That's what Jesus' disciples are doing here. They're not marrying him, but they're paying a cost. They're making a commitment. They're happy to give up everything to follow him. And they're not entirely sure what's coming up next. But I think there's a bit more to to it than that as well. The second thing, they do it straight away. There's no hanging around. They don't sort out their affairs first. They don't even pull the net out of the water. They don't row their father home. They don't kiss their mum goodbye. This doesn't look like a carefully considered engagement. So the marriage illustration isn't good enough to describe everything that's going on here. How about this? Imagine a young boy playing football in a refugee camp. And one day a talent scout comes along and says, come with me. What does he do? He'll have to leave pretty quick. This scout isn't coming by again. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Neither of those illustrations quite cut it. But I think they help to describe the way these four fishermen responded to Jesus. When he walks beside the sea one day and shouts, come, follow me. That is simply what they do. Who provokes that kind of response? Only one person in the whole of history. Jesus. Jesus is the light who was promised to this land that was in spiritual darkness. These fishermen are not actually crazy. They are just seeing things in a different light. They're following their king. They are stepping into the kingdom of heaven. I struggled a bit trying to think of how to sum up this little bit of the passage. When the groom is at the wedding, tasting his bride, and looks back at the first moment they met, what words does he use? And when the professional footballer looks back on his career 
and that moment when the scouts came by and chose him. What words does he use? Maybe they can't talk for the tears. But then they managed to say something like this. That was the best thing that ever happened to me. That is what the story of fishermen is. It's a story of when they first met Jesus and they chose to follow him. Their lives were never the same again. A moment they'll always remember. It's the best thing that has ever happened to them. And they see it. That's why they are so quick to leave everything they cherish. The kingdom of heaven is the best thing that has ever happened. And now part three. Read with me from verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralysed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. I hope you've seen on the way through this passage that this kingdom of heaven is different from any other kingdom we've seen before, or empire, or democracy, or whatever. We've seen it's a true hope for those living in darkness. We've seen that for those who follow Jesus, it's the best thing ever. And here, we get a glimpse of the total transformation the king brings. There's a lovely reversal going on since the start of the passage. Jesus didn't start out in Jerusalem. He started in the disgraced lands of the north. And now crowds are coming there from Jerusalem because of Jesus. This land has been transformed into a land of hope. It has had its honour restored. Now, Will you imagine this scene that we've just read with me? Shut your eyes if it helps you to, to imagine. <laughs> imagine huge crowds bringing all they love in stretches on their backs. They're leading their blind friends. Maybe a group of lepers coming wrapped up in their bandages. People who have been running after any cure they can get. Nothing has ever quite worked before. People save up and spend all the money they can find to find a cure. And now they hear of this man called Jesus. Finally, someone has come who can actually heal them and set them free. He can give these people their lives back. This passage is so general, it's astounding. It seems like nothing is too much for Jesus. He is bringing an end to the pain. Demons are on the run. Paralytics are walking and the blind can see. Healing when Jesus is around is always more than just a cure. It is creative and life-giving. We all want to change. Think of all those promises on magazine covers that are going to make your life better. Diet, workout, 
financial planning, get-rich-quick schemes, do they really make a difference? Can anything else really heal and truly set you free? Only the kingdom of heaven brings total transformation. So what? What we've seen this morning is just a little glimpse. You might have noticed that the whole world isn't healed. Yet. And you've probably not had an experience as profound as those fishermen. And you've not been invaded by the Assyrian army. But the kingdom of heaven is still the true hope for those living in darkness. So, Now picture yourself walking home to your fridge door. What photos or lists or goals or priorities are on it? Are there some other things that you are putting your ultimate hope in? Or is it just that it's just been crowded out so that it's not in your mind? Career, money, family, education, none of them are bad things, but none of them are ultimate things either. How about making some room on your fridge door, right in the middle, for promises about the kingdom of heaven? Maybe it's not your fridge door, maybe it's your smartphone or your desktop wallpaper. Fill it with promises of the kingdom of heaven, of Jesus coming again to make all things new. When he comes to wipe away every tear, when there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. You could think of Zebulun and Naphtali as a picture of our world today. It's in darkness because it's turned away from the word of God. But the kingdom of heaven is about renewing and restoring and rescuing and redeeming. And that sunrise, that new dawn, is coming. And do you remember what I said? The kingdom of heaven is the best thing that has ever happened. I'm a follower of Jesus, so that is true for me. It's as simple as that. You don't have to have a momentous, life-transforming moment where you leave your father stranded in a boat. That's probably good news. Um, Is the kingdom of heaven your true hope? Is it the best thing that has ever happened to you? If it is, then treasure it. Go and tell people about it. Don't speak of God as if he's in the clouds. He's not an abstract concept. He's a person who stepped into our world and transformed our lives. His call to those fishermen on the lake was unique. Jesus might not call us to give up our jobs, our families, our security. But what is he calling you to where you are? Is he calling you to fish for people? If you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus this morning, I've been praying for you this week. I've been praying that the kingdom of heaven would come near. There's no qualification to be in the kingdom. You don't have to go to a course, sign sign your name, pay any money. You don't have to be born in a particular country, at a particular time, in a particular family, or in a particular way. You don't have to understand all of what I've said this morning. You can enter it right now. You just have to say sorry, maybe a thank you or two, and follow Jesus, the king who cares, who can keep his good promises. 
If you're deciding to do that right now, tell someone before you go. And if you're not quite convinced yet, please ask, and someone will be glad to do a Bible study with you. Or you can do one of those courses. The kingdom of heaven brings total transformation because Jesus is unlike any king we've ever seen before. And the kingdom of heaven is unlike any kingdom we've ever seen before. I started by talking about how we've never seen anyone good enough to be king. But Jesus is different. His kingdom is different. Remember that picture of light dawning in the land of utter darkness. Isaiah goes on to tell us that that light is a person, a son, a king, God himself. I'm going to finish this morning by reading some more of what he says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Father God, we thank you this morning for your Son who has come as the light of the world. We thank you that you care about the darkness and you come to deal with it. We thank you for your kingdom. We thank you that it's better than any other kingdom we've ever known or heard of. That it's true that it's a real hope for us. Lord, please, would it be near to us? Would you help us to feel its reality in our lives? Please, would you keep it from being cluttered out by our own lives? Would it be our hope? Would it be our ultimate hope? Would it be the thing that we look to? In Jesus' name, and for his glory, and for his kingdom. Amen.